I'm glad that you're all here this morning, and uh, I'll make one announcement, which is we had lots and lots of leftovers last night, so if you want some more food this evening, we'll do something after the service, just really informal, um, but lots of good food. Uh, two things I wanted to mention other than that, uh, our scripture memory, we usually read on the inside of the bulletin. Together, our memory verse, and all I want to do is look at Ephesians 5 and verse 2, the last verse, uh, together, so we can give more time to Pastor Parker. Um, The other thing that I wanted to do um, is uh, is mention that uh, there's no change in Anita's condition, uh, so pray for God's kindness um, if she doesn't strengthen soon the doctors won't be able to treat her sepsis, and uh, it probably would be life-ending. Um, so pray, pray for God's kindness in that circumstance. But our scripture memory is Ephesians 5 and verse 2. Let's read together. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Might we rejoice in what our Savior has done for us, bringing fellowship with the Father. Uh, Let's bow and we'll begin our uh, Sunday school time in prayer. Let's look to our God. Lord, you know that we've been praying much. I've been praying much for uh, these meetings. I pray that you would bless even as we have opportunity to hear from Uh, Pastor Parker, in the Sunday school hour, uh, might you direct his speech to your glory. Might we at all times seek to uh, not just hear your word, but understand it better and apply it better. I pray that you would bless to that end in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, good morning. I think I got a chance to meet most everyone last night, but not quite everyone, so good to see some folks that looking forward to getting to know you a little bit here after our morning service. Uh, but yes, it is a blessing to be with you guys again, and just even reflecting after last night's meeting, uh, I just I thoroughly enjoy getting to know God's people and these faithful churches, and uh, so thanks for having me out, and hope this morning will be a blessing to you as well. And by the way, let me speak about uh, our Sunday school hour and our morning service this morning. For those who were here last night, you know that we we dove, kind of laying groundwork, dove into our theme there, which is going to continue through tonight, tomorrow night, and so forth. But this morning's Teaching here in Sunday school and sermon will be a little bit more freestanding, although they'll be di- directly related. Uh, just more aimed at us as a church family, uh, church body here, and encouraging you guys in the mission that God has called you to um, in terms of fostering conservative Christianity. And so this morning during our, our uh, Sunday school hour, I want to talk about, and by the way, just let me clarify about 10.15, Pastor Nathan, is that usually when you... Okay. All right. Just make sure I clarify when we're done here. Um, in this morning's uh, Sunday school hour, I'd like to talk, focus on um, encouraging and fostering Christ, conservative Christianity regarding the family 
and then during our morning service and the sermon, we'll talk about that more specifically with relationship to the church. Now, we're going to talk about the church a lot more in our evening meetings too, uh, but just as an encouragement to to you guys, um, this is what we'll be talking about here this morning. We're talking about the family. In fact, uh, I guess if I was going to title this this morning, and I'll take some time to write some of this down. Marriage as a mission... Helping us understand the nature and the purpose of the family so that, again, we have a full orb conception of what it means, why this matters to fostering conservative Christianity. I don't think I'll be saying anything particularly new to you folks here today, but again, hopefully it'll be an encouragement and challenge and even a deepening of your ability to practice this well. Um, It's no secret, of course, I don't need to spend a lot of time proving to you, I'm sure, that the institution of marriage is in a lot of trouble today in our society. Uh, Not only have people tried to redefine marriage itself, they've tried to redefine everything related to it, whether it's uh, what it means to be male or female. And of course, this failure does stem from the sinful and rebellious hearts of mankind, we know that. And yet, I think it's interesting to pay attention to how that has worked out in our society because it doesn't always manifest, that that sinful rebellion of mankind doesn't always manifest itself in the same exact way in every human society. It will work out in different ways. Um, but one of the things I think there has been is a, a an atrophy of the cultural understanding of what marriage is and what marriage is for so that few people enter into marriage with any clear uh, mission Like, what am I trying to accomplish here? What's the goal? Uh, Family historian Alan Carlson has argued that in the mid to late 18th century, five qualities defined the social order in America. And in other words, your average Joe on the street, even if he wasn't a believer at that time, probably would have had this in his mind related to marriage because this is just the way it was done. Uh, kind of an idea. These five qualities define the social order. One is the primacy of the family economy. Two, the continued power of kinship and community. Three, a central focus on land. Four, abundance of children. And five, the power of intergenerational bonds. And in this kind of a society, even non-Christians find great purpose in the family or the household unit. Uh, Their life very naturally revolves around it and depends upon it, not just like a sentimental arrangement, we get married because we love each other and we want to spend our lives together, um, but as the moral and social and economic support for life, you need each other. <laughs> this is the way life works. Um, however, Carlson argues, Americans largely accepted changes which removed the family from any significant economic and educational role. Um Often the school movements took away the purpose of training the next generation from the family. Child labor laws, social security system, federal welfare laws, some tax provisions um, undermine the economic integrity of the family. And so, he argues, by the 1950s, about the only productive purposes left for marriage were to bear children and live with someone you loved. But with love often defined more in therapeutic terms of uh, self-actualization. Every other productive function of life was centralized in some other institution besides the household. 
And so with the advent then of even cheap and easy contraception, with legalized abortion, um, even the physical relationship leading to bearing children has been detached from marriage in many people's minds. And so coming into the 21st century, it looks like the only remaining purpose for marriage is to be with someone who makes you feel good about yourself and helps you achieve a happy life. Is it surprising then that marriage is crumbling as a social institution? So I think we as Christians, uh, when we want to foster conservative Christianity, um, have a wonderful opportunity actually to... Uh, reclaim God's view of marriage to live in the love that that means and to show the world the goodness of building this counterculture of love. So let's talk about here today a little bit about this, The first of all, the nature of marriage. If you want to look at Genesis 2.24, it's a good text to start off with here, a foundational text on this, Genesis 2.24. <clears throat> In fact, while I'm turning there, if someone has that, would you like to read it out loud for us here so we can all hear this together? Genesis 2.24, who wants to read that for us? Anybody have it there? All right, go right ahead. Yes. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right, good. This is a... a a crucial text for opening up some insight into marriage. One of the reasons it's significant is because as the Holy Spirit is having Moses write what God did in creating mankind, uh, making Adam and then bringing Eve, he stops the description of the narrative here and gives us a little interpretation to say, hey, this is what this means. Therefore, uh, pay attention to this, right? Uh, this is why you need to know this story about Adam and Eve because this is what God is doing. He says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. Uh, they will become one flesh. So here's some important... and Yeah, we're talking here about the nature of marriage. Here's some important uh, aspects of the nature of marriage. First of all, marriage is obviously a relationship between one man and one woman. That's the way God designed it to work. He created Adam and he created Eve. And he made them come together in this relationship of marriage. Uh, that is uh, crucial to the definition of marriage, even if people want to try to legally define it in other ways. Uh, human law at that point becomes trumped by the reality of the way God says things are. This is the way he created it to be. Marriage is a relationship between one man and one woman. Second, marriage is a leaving and cleaving kind of relationship it's described here. In other words, it's exclusive for its purposes. Uh, and by the way, this is a contrast of marriage with other kinds of friendship. Marriage is one kind of friendship. Uh, it's a very good kind of friendship in that way. But we have friendships with, with all kinds of people in different contexts and in different ways. Uh, but marriage is unique in that it's a particular kind of friendship, a particular kind of relationship that is exclusive for its purposes. Uh, maybe sometimes when you were little kids, you might have run into this, well, I can't be your friend because I'm going to be her friend. Kind of a, <laughs> you ever heard a little kid say something like that? Yes, and we and we have to teach them, no, that's not true. You can be friends with all these people, right? That's a, a good thing. 
But for God's purposes for marriage, no, that is exclusive. To be in union with this one man or this one woman is a uh, exclusive kind of relationship, and God intends it to be lifelong. Third, we note here that marriage is a one flesh kind of relationship. Uh, that's uh, what is a conjugal relationship. That's its very nature to be this kind of relationship as opposed to any others. And that's especially why it is exclusive. But it's also important to note what's implicit in Genesis 2.24 that is made explicit in some other texts in scripture, that marriage is a kind of a covenant relationship. And I want to dwell on this just for a moment here. <clears throat> Uh, we see this in places like Proverbs 2.17 or Malachi 2.14, that marriage is a kind of covenant relationship. And I think in order for us to understand a covenant kind of relationship, it's helpful to contrast it with a contract <clears throat> relationship. Um, we typically, in our business world or various endeavors, we organize our relationships with other people by contracts. Uh, whenever something serious has to get done, right, we'll sign a contract about it. Or whenever a lot of money is at stake or something like that, we you know, sign a contract about it so that the relationship is clearly defined from the outset. Here's, here's the responsibilities on each side. Here's what you have to do in order to fulfill the relationship. And then, um, you know, okay, I'm going to do a roof for somebody here and you know we sign the contract and it's going to cost this much money so we've fulfilled the relationship when the work is done the roof is on properly and you've paid the money now there now that has been fulfilled <clears throat> pardon me but you notice something about a contract is that uh, a contract is uh thing oriented uh, it's usually about negotiation for a particular thing, the particular performance of a specified act, and then it's taken care of. Uh, it's done. When we contrast this with a covenant kind of relationship, a covenant relationship is person-oriented. It doesn't mean there can't be agreements within it, uh, but it's really not based on or primarily aimed at performance of a specific duty. It's aimed at we want a relationship here. It's the person that I'm after in the covenant relationship. Uh, the obligation in the covenant is not primarily performance, but loyalty. Um, the termination, like of a contract, is usually specified. In a covenant, it's typically unspecified. You don't, because that's not the goal. The goal isn't to bring this to a completion and then we're done. We've got it. It's, no, it's, I want a relationship here. That's what a covenant is oriented toward. <clears throat> so a covenant is a relationship oriented toward a union of persons. Uh, just to draw this out a little bit, John Barclay picks up in, in uh, Paul's contrast of pay versus gift in Romans chapter 4 to help us understand more of the nature of personal giving relationships. He says, pay was contractual, calculable, and generally impersonal. Gift, by contrast, is surrounded with sentiment not subject to law and unpredictable in its quantity and timing. Paul speaks of grace as an undeserved gift. That's the kind of relationship we're talking about here. It's not something you can calculate out. Um, have you ever, <clears throat> I mean, you don't ever say to somebody, I'd like $13 worth of friendship, please. That wouldn't make any sense. 
because you can't calculate it in terms of dollars. I could do that with bread. I could do that with you know employment to a degree. But once it's a personal relationship, now it's it's out of the realm of being able to calculate in that kind of a way because it's about the relationship. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, and yet it's not just any personal relationship that is a covenant relationship. Covenant gives structure to personal relationships. It binds or unites people together in a particular purpose. And I think the fact that marriage is a covenant helps us explain why we often talk about marriage in terms of love. Uh, Again, everybody, almost everybody usually talks about marriage in terms of love. Uh, Why why do we do that? Is it just because of feeling? No, it's because love is a gift. 1 John 4, 7 says that love is from God. So it's certainly not merely a feeling, uh, but neither is it merely a choice. It's something bigger which comes to us from God. Uh, Love is a union. If God is love, and he can be love precisely because he is triune, like we talked about last night, and we'll continue talking about more here, then love is a kind of a union. It's not the union of a substance, like uh, bolting the parts of an engine together. Uh, It's the union that transcends substance and joins us at the level of spirit. Romans 5.5 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this union is something which all creation participates in, <clears throat> or it wouldn't even exist. Uh, again, we're going to talk about that more tonight. But it's expressed in its highest and most complete form in persons. Uh, let, let me try to illustrate this a little bit here. I think I've got time to pause and, and talk about this. Uh <clears throat> Perhaps some of you have uh, had something like an old chair that's your spot you love to sit in in the evenings, and it's just, it fits you, you love it, you like to relax at the end of the day there, and you love that old chair. You've had it for years and years. Um, Finally, your wife says, you know, this is just too old, too worn out, we got to get rid of it, um, and we need to get something different. And so you get rid of the old chair. But somehow you miss the old thing. It's like, why, why am I so attached to this old chair, but I, I, I miss it. It's like a piece of my life is gone. Um, what made you feel that way? That's love. There was an attachment. Love is a union that binds you to things. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, now we could get more serious things. Maybe you think of Grandma's house. I remember going to Grandma's house when I was young, and I have such good memories of that. And uh, I miss that place. It probably wasn't a particularly special house as a house or anything like that, but there was a relationship of love there, which is joining you. That's what love does. You're linked to it by love. Now let's consider a much deeper example, an example of love between persons. Consider a parent whose child is going through a very difficult <clears throat> pardon me, situation beyond the parent's power to fix, to uh, relieve the suffering. Why does the parent suffer if the child is the one having the problem? It's because of love. Your lives are linked together now so that what is happening to one is you are participating in, in a very real sense. Uh, 
There's a real link between a parent and a child. That link is love. So notice how the Bible describes love as a union. Uh, In the famous friendship between Jonathan and David, the Bible says, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In Colossians 3, we are told to put on in our new creation life in Christ, and we read, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Your lives are knit together in love, harmonized with one another, participating in one another. There's a kind of oneness that exists there. Pardon me. If love includes the recognition, it is good that you exist, then it also goes on to say, it is good that we exist together. That's what love says. We are together. We can even say that this union between persons on this personal level, the highest level of existence, is a mutual indwelling. A kind of a mutual indwelling. Jesus described it this way in John chapter 17 in his uh, prayer to his father before going to the cross. And he prays that his followers would be in him, just like he is in the father. There's a kind of a mutual indwelling going on here. Um, The Apostle Paul would reflect this in his relationship. In In Philippians 1, 7, he writes to the believers in Philippi, for it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. Now, is that just a figure of speech? Where did it come from? Because it's actually true. He said, you are in my heart. Our lives are linked together now. Uh, The core of who I am has you in it. It's a personal relationship here. And this love of union then is, is effected in giving and receiving. How is a union of love brought about? By giving yourself to others and by receiving others into your heart. The Father loves the Son in this way. The Father loves the Son and is giving all things into his hand, John 3.35 says. And God loves us in this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gives himself to us in such a way as to overcome all that keeps us apart. What wondrous love is this that we sing sometimes that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Jesus promised after his ascension, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. God gives himself to us. And that's why 1 John 4, 16 says, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Giving yourself to another person, as all of you know by personal experience here, is going requires uh, personal presence and a favor, an attention given to the other person. <clears throat> um, if, you, if you say you love somebody, but then you never want to be around that person, does that work? Well, no, we all recognize that something's not right here. You can say you love, but if you're not actually giving yourself in personal presence, then it's not happening. <clears throat> to me, the uh, paradigmatic human example of this is... Uh, a mother with a newborn child. The baby is just born and they give the baby to the mother. And what does that mother do? 
she looks right at that baby and smiles. She maybe kisses it. She's giving herself to that child. Even when that child can't respond on a human level yet, but it's precisely through that love that that child is being brought into the human relationship of love. Uh, Learning that. um, John Owen, the Puritan theologian, wrote, Generally, love is an affection of union and nearness with complacency therein. Now, he's using complacency in an older sense of the term, of rest and delight. Uh, we think of complacency as not really caring, but he's, uh, he's saying resting and delighting in um, a true joy in union with another. He says, God is fully satisfied in that object that he has fixed his love upon. God takes pleasure in those that abide with him. And so love's union is initiated by giving yourself to another and then it's completed by receiving, receiving that other. If you want to love, you have to be open to receiving another into your heart. Uh, Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Love desires the love of the other. What What does love want in return? Does love want money? No. (laughs) Uh, In fact, it can be almost offensive if someone tries to pay you for love. That's not how this works. What does love actually want? It wants a return of love. That's what it's after. Jonathan Edwards preached a powerful sermon entitled Heaven is a World of Love, which is a culmination of a series of sermons on 1 Corinthians 13. And he said, love there, speaking of in heaven, always meets with answerable returns of love. Love is always mutual and the returns are always in due proportion. Love always seeks this. In proportion as any person is beloved, in that proportion his love is desired and prized. And he says there, all shall have propriety in one another. Love seeks to have the beloved as its own. And divine love rejoices in saying, my beloved is mine and I am his. And in heaven, all shall not only be related to one another, but they shall be each other's. Ever stop to think about that? In heaven, Edwards is saying, we will all belong to each other. Uh, We're not just going to be related in terms of sort of externally. We're actually all going to belong to one another. And that's what love wants. And so as we journey together in the church toward heaven, we seek the kind of love with one another giving ourselves to one another, receiving one another into our hearts. And this is true even in difficult situations, right? When relationships are strained, when things are hard, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as uh, as to children, widen your hearts also. Open your hearts to us. We want this relationship. Even though you're being unkind as the Corinthians were to him at that point. Um, and that, that brings me to a famous quote from C.S. Lewis that you may well have heard or read before, uh, but I think it's, it's well put uh, from his work, The Four Loves. He says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, keeping it safe, then you must give your heart to no one. 
Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all relational entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy in our relationships, or at least the risk of hurt in our relationships, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. I think that's exactly right. If you refuse to love, well, this is your alternative. Because heaven is a world of love. God is love. Our relationships as creatures made in his image, as persons, are made to be love. Pardon me. And we could talk for a long time about what that means. We're going to actually unpack some of these kinds of things in our evening meetings uh, and how this fosters a conservative mindset. Uh, In fact, let me just pause right there. Can you see how um, what I'm trying to do is identify this conservatism we're talking about here with love? Conservative is not some fearful, defensive posture of don't change anything, don't mess with anything. (laughs) It's actually... No, I want to love God fully and I want to love my neighbor rightly. That's what life is about. Um, Pardon me. Uh, And marriage and family on a temporal level are about this. Uh, So properly understood, I went on that little kind of uh, roundabout trail to talk about the nature of marriage. When we say marriage is about love, I, I would actually say, yes, very much it is about love. Uh, but it's the kind of love that few modern people know anything about. It's covenant loyalty for another's good. That's what we're talking about. And this, of course, comes out even more clearly when we look at what marriage points us to. Uh, Ephesians 5.32. Does anybody know that text even right off the top of your head without even looking at it? If you need to, you can turn over there. Uh, Ephesians 5.32. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> In fact, <clears throat> while I take a drink, if, if anyone has it, if you would go ahead and read it for us, that would be great. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Okay, and the mystery, of course, in that context is marriage. marriage. Yes, good. Thank you. <clears throat> marriage is a sign on a creaturely level of a relationship that transcends the here and now. And so its ultimate cause or reason is Christ in the church. Why did God design your marriage? Ultimately, to point beyond itself to Christ in the church, to be a human analogy of love on a human level uh, of Christ in the church. So to give a clear and succinct definition of marriage, from a Christian perspective, marriage is an exclusive and lifelong covenant, one flesh union of a man and a woman designed to represent the relationship of Christ and his church. Now, as a one flesh union, it is ordered toward bearing and discipling new image bearers of God. So I want to move on here to talk about the purposes of marriage. Hopefully you're picking up already here why the family is such a central institution to fostering conservative Christianity. 
there simply won't be conservative Christianity if families aren't being what they're supposed to be because this is the love of God worked out on our on our human level. Uh, this is absolutely crucial. Uh, but also, then just as a word of encouragement uh, for your church right here, uh, when you are participating in this, know that you are participating and, and carrying out in a profound way the work of God on earth. Uh, sometimes, you know, we're, we're in our churches and we feel like maybe we're not doing a whole lot or we're not really uh, maybe accomplishing a whole lot. Not a whole lot of people are flocking to our churches or uh, these kinds of things. Not that we don't long to see more people reached, absolutely. But if we're going to foster conservative Christianity that really is worth spreading, then this kind of a thing, marriage, family, this needs to be going on in a fundamental way uh, in our churches and we're accomplishing the mission of God. Let's let's talk about the purposes of the marriage mission. God designed marriage to be the kind of relationship it is, its nature, uh, with certain objectives in mind. Certain purposes, right? The nature fits the purpose. Uh, And so we see these purposes revealed in Scripture. Uh, First of all, I will will summarize it. The first purpose I want to summarize here is to rule the earth for God. God designed marriage for us to rule the earth with God. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.27 And of course, um, what did that come right after in the text? God creates them male and female as, as his image bearers and then he blesses them. A central aspect of this dominion this ruling the earth for God, is reproducing God's image bearers. That's why he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God intends that he be glorified by a multitude of creatures made in his image who can worship him. That was was his goal. Marriage is an essential part of his method for accomplishing that mission. Um, And then a fruitfulness in marriage. By the way, we see this... uh, has come out in the last couple generations or so in our societies as well, to want marriage while rejecting children or to desire children while rejecting marriage is to refuse God's mission and to embark on our own selfish mission in life. Um, Now I summarize the purpose of marriage as productive dominion and procreative discipleship. Let me, I'll write this out. Ruling the earth for God entails productive dominion and procreative discipleship. Uh, An intrinsic aspect of reproducing God's image bearers. Let me just talk about that for a minute. I'm going to be selective here for time's sake. Um, is rearing the children God gives. Uh, we're, we're not rabbits, are we? The goal isn't just to have as many offspring as possible, um, per se. The goal is to train up 
image bearers of God, worshipers of God, followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, he's designed to be the first one of my enemy brothers. I mean, these, we're, we're calling into existence and training up brothers of Jesus Christ. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. And that's given that fundamental responsibility is given to the family. As a family, we have a common life and a common good, and the fundamental task of forming human beings is given to the family. Parents are responsible before God for their children. Not the state, by the way. Parents are responsible before God for their children. So there is that training, educational responsibility of the family. There's also an irreducible economic responsibility of the household um, to care for one another, to do what it takes to uh, provide for one another. And I would just encourage you today, by the way, if you want a meaningful family life, make your family economically, educationally, productively meaningful. That is, accomplish important tasks together. Uh, your household isn't just a place to come and sleep at night, you know, and then maybe grab some food, and that's about it. You can do everything else in life uh, without this place. No, that's a maybe a dormitory, <laughs> you know. Uh, our family households are centers of meaningful life together. We do important things together. We accomplish things together. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, again, this was, could kind of be somewhat even naturally built into some people's lives in the past just by the nature of how we lived. A family farm. I mean, what did you do? You worked together every day because that's how you lived, <laughs> Right? But it meant you did tend to form significant bonds because your life is lived working together. Um, sometimes today we have to be a little bit more intentional about that because it doesn't just happen. It's not just given to us. You know, dad goes off to work and the family might never even know what he does because it's kind of irrelevant. He brings home the paycheck. That's what matters, right? <laughs> uh, not that, I'm not saying it's inherently wrong for dad to go. I'm just saying... We have to work hard in that kind of a scenario to now incorporate the family into meaningful, productive accomplishments of what we're doing together. When we're doing that, we are fostering conservative Christianity because we do all that in the context of love. Now, I need to move on quickly here. This is the immediate created purpose given right in Genesis 1 for the family. But all of that is pointing beyond itself to something much greater. <clears throat> And that is reflect Christ and the church. <clears throat> That's the ultimate purpose of the family. Let me just note here um, something that's very much a contrast. Do you see pleasure anywhere in that purpose? Like, God designed marriage and family uh, to give us pleasure. No. That's not a purpose. Now, there is much pleasure in accomplishing God's mission, <laughs> but that's not the purpose. And when we aim at that instead of the mission, then we lose uh, what God is, was giving us here. Likewise, even companionship is not in and of itself a purpose for marriage. Uh we can have companionship as humans without marriage. In fact, we can have very deep friendships without marriage. 
marriage isn't essential to companionship per se. Uh, <clears throat> marriage might bring about companionship, and that's good. But it's not a distinctive purpose of marriage. I think this is good to keep this clear in our minds so that it will help keep us on track. Uh, how do you know if you've accomplished the mission for which God gave marriage? How do you know if you're actually accomplishing the mission? I think the mark of a good marriage is how well it images Christ in the church. How well it really shows to the world, this is the true nature of our God. This is the true nature of his redeeming purposes. This is who Christ is. And this is his wonderful bride, the church. Uh, when we get this, I think we'll start, we, we will see lives, Christians living lives that are, are very distinctive in our day, but very distinctive in a salty kind of way, a, a light-giving kind of way that is beautiful, because it will show so many people out there who, well, I, I, I work with people, and I'm sure you interact with them too, uh, they simply don't believe that there can be relationships of love. They've never seen it. They didn't have it growing up in their household. Why would you want to get married to somebody? That's just, I mean, just creating a lot of kind of entanglements. If you like each other, kind of live together for a while, see if it works. You know, if it doesn't, okay, move on. In other words, they don't even know what real love is. But they want that. They were made for it. And they need to see Christians say this is what it really looks like and it's good yes it's it's hard work but it's very good marriage is a wonderful mission an intense mission uh, which we receive from god by faith working through love in order to image christ in the church pardon me Uh, just in summation here let me give a, a kind of a bullet point contrast of the modern view of marriage versus a christian view and the modern view of marriage Marriage changes through evolution. It's evolving. It's an evolving institution which just evolves to meet our needs. Um, In fact, I've read secular historians who try to make that kind of argument. Uh, You know, people came up with this concept of marriage to help them meet their needs. But when the needs change, then the relationship called marriage can change too. So um, it doesn't have to be monogamous. It could change to something else. It doesn't even have to be between a man and a woman. It could change to something else. Whatever suits your needs, really. That's the way the world often looks at marriage. It changes through evolution. In the modern view of marriage, is expressed primarily in individual rights. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, and the goal is individual fulfillment. Why would I get married? Because it fulfills me. You know, it helps me be all I'm supposed to be. And then, of course, if if it doesn't feel like this relationship is helping me be all that I wanted to be in life, well, then we'll just end it and try something else. But that's really idolatry. The Christian view of marriage is that it's rooted in creation, not evolution, creation. Its nature is given by God because it reflects God. It's expressed in covenant relationship. The goal then is to glorify God through productive dominion and procreative discipleship with the ultimate goal, instead of ending up with idolatry, like the the modern view of marriage does, it ends up in worship. 
It ends up in seeing the goodness of God and bringing many people to worship him together. Uh, this is uh, just a, a reminder to you this morning. And again, I don't think this is anything new. Maybe a, an encouragement to you to think about the profound nature of what God has given to you in our families and our marriage relationships and to live in that mission, to be on that mission uh, here at Blaine Baptist Church. All right, I'm going to stop right there today. There's always always a lot more we can talk about when it comes to accomplishing that mission uh, as a family together today, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll call that good. Any, any final thoughts, comments, questions? Uh, thank you to all of those of you who are faithfully endeavoring to carry out this mission. Uh, it really is is important uh, in this world. It's uh, such a blessing to everybody around you uh, when you do that. All right, I think that's all. Then, Pastor Nathan, I'll turn it over to you here. <laughs> As we go forth, might God strengthen us in uh, marriages and families. That will be to his glory. Let's uh, close our time together in prayer and look to our God once more. Lord, um, thank you for these reminders. I pray that as we seek to live life with Christ at the center of how we think about what we're doing and who we are, that Christ and the church would thus be the center of and one of the main purposes of our thinking about our marriages. Uh, Use us uh, not just so that we will be fulfilling your desires, though we certainly want to do those things, but use us so that you would get the glory, so that you would be uplifted. I pray you bless uh, our remaining time together in the morning hour. We look to you in Christ's name. Amen.